And I was living with her at the time, and I said, how can I go? And she said, how can you not? You don't jump half into the water. You've done this. If you don't follow it through, you'll always wonder. And so she was the one that encouraged me. She sold her car, so I had some money. I arrived on the Saturday, and I was fired on the Tuesday. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. I am your host, Mike Flynn. And if you're just joining us, the mission of my show is twofold, to guide you to an encounter with your own potential and greatness and to show you it is possible to leverage who you were made to be into a business or a platform that impacts the lives of others and helps you design the life that you want. My guests are entrepreneurs and leaders who have had what I refer to as an impact moment and are now using their platform to have a game-changing impact in the lives of others. That all sounds great, right? But none of that is possible unless you take action. If you've listened to my show for any length of time, you know that each guest is part of a series such as leadership, mindset, courage, the comeback, and in this case, halftime. It's the middle of the year. You set out with some goals at the beginning of the year, and if you are on track with them, then congratulations, you're awesome. But if you're like me and most people, then you might have gotten off target or off your game plan over the course of the last six months. Now, however, is the perfect time to determine how the rest of the year will go for you and for me. What action will you take? When will you take it? And with whom will you take that action with? As I told somebody recently, it's time to grab the opportunity bull by the horns and ride it into submission. One of my personal anthems is the song Hall of Fame by the band The Script. The lyrics remind me of what you and I are capable of achieving. The lyrics like these, you can throw your hands up, you can beat the clock, you can move a mountain, you can break the rocks, you can be a master, don't wait for luck. Dedicate yourself and you're going to find yourself. If you and I do this day in and day out, even if we fail, but we get back up and we do it again, then we might stand a chance of standing in the Hall of Fame of our own life. My hope is that the guests you will hear from these next few weeks will stoke your thinking, inspire you to believe in yourself again, and take action, even if it means walking into the wrong room. That last bit will make more sense when you hear from Steve Sims. Now, enough from me. It's time to hear from our incredible guests. Let me be clear. Do not listen to this episode with the kiddos around. Steve Sims is an awesome guest and has a colorful vocabulary. So as Vince Vaughn would say, earmuffs. Now, Steve is the visionary founder of Bluefish, the world's first luxury concierge that delivers the highest level of personalized travel, transportation, and cutting-edge entertainment services to corporate executives, celebrities, professional athletes, and other discerning individuals interested in living a life to its fullest. For example, here are just two incredible samples of the experiences that Steve and the Bluefish team have created for their A-list clientele. How about visiting the International Space Station or taking a submarine trip to the Titanic? 
In addition to all of these incredible experiences and his incredible business, Steve has also launched the Blue Cause, which has raised over a half a million dollars for nonprofit organizations without taking one cent in administrative or other fees, been featured in Ivy League publications, including Forbes, The Wall Street Journal, South China Post, The London Times, and more than 50 others, been invited to speak at luxury clubs, entrepreneurial groups, the Pentagon, and even Harvard twice. We learn a lot about what it was like growing up in East London, how walking into the wrong room led him to where he is today, why having a sense of humor is so much so important, and so much more. So bust out your pens and paper, take some notes, and brace for impact with Steve Sims. Steve Sims, welcome to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. I am excited to have you on the show. We have a lot of mutual friends and acquaintances and people in the online world. And uh, I love what you're doing, and I'm really excited to have you on the show. Oh, thank you very much. I'd love to, to learn a little bit more about you. I don't know a tremendous amount about uh, your background, other than what I've seen on Facebook, which is amazing what you're up to. But I'd love to learn what it was like growing up in East London. Was it easy? Was it tough? Was it somewhere in the middle? What were your parents like? My parents were tough. Um, I'm from an Irish construction family. And I was the first member of my family to be born on British soil. So while my family are Irish, I'm the token Brit. We never had a, it. It's funny. It, that's actually a very deep question, which causes me to kind of like, you know, kind of like uh, crawl up a little bit. At the time, I thought I was poor. At the time, I thought I had nothing. Um, we didn't have anything new. My dad bought a new car once, and I think he was like 15 years old, and I couldn't work out how you can call something 15 years old a new car. But to our family, it was a new car. And it was those kind of things that, made me grow up and go, I want a better life. I want to wear sharp suits. I want to do this. Because quite simply, I was a, a, a Neanderthal rolling around East London in a black T-shirt riding a, a shitty motorcycle. It wasn't until about 25 years later when I got to be doing what I was doing and meeting the people I was meeting. And I, I, I became confident and comfortable in my own business and in me and my relationship that I realized all of that had come from my family. And while I never had a Rolls Royce take me to a private school, I had more riches than I realized and was able to grow up as the unforgiving, no excuse, it is what it is kind of person I am now because of the strength and character of those people. So I spent many years feeling very bitter. And then many years afterwards, feeling like a twat that I'd actually felt so almost ashamed of my upbringing when really it was the best upbringing in the planet. I couldn't have asked for a better one. Oh my gosh, dude. I, I love that answer. And there's a couple of things that, that come to mind from your response. And the first is that there's generally two responses to the way that you grew up when you, in terms of thinking I was poor, quote unquote, you know, the, and the impact that it has on one's mindset. Either they're going to carry on with the scarcity mindset or they're going to do what you did, which is, I want to wear sharp suits and you know do great things. And so you went in that direction. And then fast forward 25 years later, you have the ability to pause and reflect on your upbringing, 
and you realize how rich of a life that you had and and specifically the strength and character that you garnered through those experiences growing up. What were some of those characteristics of your parents and your family members that you treasure today? Well, and it's not just the parents, it was the circle, it was the family. You know, I came from an era where you kind of knew everyone in your neighborhood and doors didn't get locked. You know, I, I remember as a young lad, you know, if I did something stupid and I was on the street and your next door neighbor would clip you on the side of the ear. Now, Jesus, you'd get Gloria Allred kind of like, you know, putting you on the TV that night saying about, you know, child beating and stuff. So I came from an era where if you, if you were going to do something and you told someone you were going to do something, it doesn't matter if it was your buddy that you were going to be there at seven o'clock or if you were, you know, bidding to build a wall, I was a bricklayer, you did what you said you were going to do. And nowadays, sadly, that's just not even taken seriously. I remember being in Florida and someone said, oh, yeah, but we're on Florida time. If we make it that day, we're on time. I'm like, fuck that. If you tell me you're going to be there at 9 o'clock, you're there at 9 o'clock. Because if I tell you I'm going to be there at 9 o'clock, I'm going to be there at 9 o'clock. I'm going to be there two minutes before waiting to push that button at nine o'clock. And it's amazing that if you've just got that primitive respect for somebody else's time and incredible respect for your word, doesn't matter what the other person's like. The other person could be an a-hole. But if you've got that respect in you, that you keep your word, you can't go wrong. Yeah, I am a, a military brat. My dad was an army officer. And we operate under a Vince Lombardi time, which is... If you're five minutes early, you're five minutes late. Kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, I've heard that. Uh, but isn't it sad that you're quoting the, 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 the military as, as a way for that kind of stuff to sink in? It should be normal. I remember going, I had an, in, an incredible honor and a life-changing experience. I was actually asked to speak at the Pentagon. And I was asked to speak at the Pentagon to generals that were leaving the military and going into civilian life. So for a start, I'm in this, this base, this incredible mothership um, up in Virginia, talking to lots of people in a room, all immaculately presented, all on time. And I said to them, you won't go anywhere in civilian life because you respect each other, you're on time, you're disciplined, you get job done when you are given lack of funds or lack of information, you still achieve, you're too far ahead to fit in, so don't try. And it's just amazing that you need a military life to build you principles that we should just have normally. Yeah, no, I totally agree. It's it's basic human relationships, you know? I mean, you wouldn't do it if you were, you, how long have you and your wife been married? <laughs> that that woman, I think you've seen me. I'm 230 pound of ugly, and I'll wrestle around with anybody. My wife is like five foot three, although she does call herself five foot four. She's a little petite thing and scares the living crap out of me. I met her when she was 16 years old, and I loved her from that moment. And you would never. I mean, you would. You know, obviously, you're you are, you know, a rare specimen, <laughs> and you understand and respect other people's time. But if, if you're not Steve Sims and you're not Mike Flynn, you would never 
not show up on time or early for someone that you're trying to impress or court. And so in relationships, it's it te- when you don't show up on time, it sounds so simple, but it's it, it's too complicated for people. But in relationships, you're actually telling them that you don't value or appreciate them or that they're not worthy enough of you showing up on time. Oh, it gets worse. It gets worse than that. And I'll tell you something I did and it, it, it spread. You're not only telling them that that time's not not important. You're actually telling them that your time is more important than them. You are more important than them because you got there on your time. Mm-hmm. And how can you start a relationship with that disrespect? I had a friend of mine. Uh, we became friends again, but I had a friend of mine that needed some help. And I said, all right, fair enough. I'll be there. You know, where are we going to meet? And we were supposed to meet at this um coffee shop in Hollywood. I think it was like 10 o'clock, okay? And so I got there at quarter 10 just to allow for traffic, just to make sure I got a table. There at quarter 10, 10 o'clock, five past, 10 past, 20 past, doesn't show, okay? Now, by about five past 10, usually if you're you're meeting someone for lunch or for breakfast or something like that, then you'll order together. If it gets to five past, I'm going to order I'm not going to waste my time. I've come for breakfast. I'm having breakfast. I'm going to order. If you turn up, I'll say, look, you were late, so I ordered in advance. Okay? That, I think, is acceptable. So I ordered breakfast. It got to 10.30, and he turned up. And I was just finishing my breakfast. So I finished my breakfast, shook his hand, got up, and said, I'm off. (laughs) And he said, I just got here. And I said, well, that's just added insult to injury with that statement. If you've got the bollocks to actually say that to me, then you don't value our relationship and you sure as shit don't value what we're trying to do for you. And I walked off. Um, and he phoned me up and he was, and I said, look, if I'm trying to get someone to do business with me and they're going to pay me and they're a little bit late, hey, it's unfortunate, I'll suffer it. If it's the second time, I'll say, hey, your time is important, but so is mine. If we're going to do a 10 o'clock, let's do a 10 o'clock. You can say that. It doesn't have to be disrespectful. It doesn't have to be confrontational, but it, was, it shows respect and professionalism. But if you're getting something from me for free, shit, you should have been there half hour before. You know, you said that those generals shouldn't expect to be like civilians. So what, what did you tell them that they should be? Leaders. Leaders, they actually thought they were going to leave. This was the whole thing, which was kind of weird. They wanted to leave. Well, they, they were leaving the military. And this whole transitional event that they did, that they had these speakers there, and they had some fantastic speakers there. Well, they had some fantastic speakers, and they had me. I don't class myself as a fantastic speaker. But I told them, don't try and fit in. You are so overqualified for civilian standards Go out there and expect to lead. Take what you've learned here and go and lead civilians into a new job fund. I said, because you're too qualified to fit in. All the other people were trying to say about how you can fit into this and this can work and just by adapting that. And I said, absolutely not. Come out as the leaders you are within. And if you've already got those tools of excellence, take them outside and why the hell would you try to fit in? And that's what I was trying to install in them, that they should go out, 
they should, and I was also trying to explain to them that because of in the military life, they're given a project. Sometimes they're not given all the information to be able to do the project. They're certainly not getting all the funding they need to do the project, yet they still have to find a way to achieve the project. Mm-hmm. Okay? And in the military, it's worse than us. If I screw up a, a, a web app tomorrow, yeah, I build another one tomorrow. You know, not me, but I get someone else to build it. Okay? In the military, you screw up, and as, they, as the saying goes, sadly, someone dies. So they have all of this lack of information, lack of funding, yet they still achieve or overachieve on the project or mission at hand. To me, take the military element out of it, that's what an entrepreneur is. Wow, yeah. An entrepreneur, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I said to him, without you guys realizing it, you've had, you've been spoon-fed times from, you know, eating your breakfast to taking a squat. The fact is... The way your mind works to achieve something at that standard is what an entrepreneur does. And I was trying to explain to them that they should not leave the military and try and fit in. They should literally get into that cage fight with an eight-year-old as the superior and dominate the field that they're getting into. They've just got to find the right field. And and I love that. I, I just was talking to somebody earlier this morning about the fact that perfect is the enemy of good and that a good plan executed violently is better than a perfect plan that's never executed. And that's one of the great lessons that a lot of military leaders attempt, and I use the word attempt uh, on purpose, attempt to teach us in the civilian world and us entrepreneurs who are really wasting a lot of time trying to find the perfect product or wait for the perfect time or the perfect opportunity to launch that thing. There never will be a perfect time or a perfect opportunity. No, I love, I love the saying you said, and I actually, um, I'm not a very good, uh, I class myself as an educated man, but I also say that school had nothing to do with that education. <laughs> I have actually trained myself in quotes so I love listening to little quotes. So I'm terrible for going, well, you know what they say, and then coming out with some kind of quip. But I remember someone said to me about an old Japanese proverb about when is the best time to plant a cherry blossom um, 100 years ago or today. And I've always remembered that, that you're right, there are so many phenomenal ideas out there that not just get executed badly, don't get executed. Mm-hmm. They sit there going, well, this is a brilliant idea. People are buy it. Well, you've got to tell people to buy it. It could be shit, but if you tell a lot of people, they'll still buy it. That's why it was called ShamWow. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious and true. <laughs> exactly. There's so many things that you don't need that people have bought because it was marketed brilliantly. Oh, man. I, I mean, just go, just walk into your local mall, which is about to shut down, by the way, and, uh, and, and, <laughs> yeah. and walk into one of those as-seen-on-TV stores. I mean, oh, yeah. you know, it's ridiculous that the junk that people buy, but they're uber successful. I mean, you know, QVC is a billion dollar organization because people buy things they don't need. I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate to know Kevin Harrington and Kevin's done very, very well at being able to get into the, into the conversations that you have in your mind uh, at the time you're having them. So basically the drunk hours at two o'clock in the morning and this is what this is what kills me. And I love this. I really love it. Where there's these kind of things like 
You can buy this knife. You'll never need another knife again. But if you order in the next 15 minutes, you get two. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've always loved that. <laughs> no, seriously. You know, going back to East London as a kid, was there a person either in your family or in your community that believed in you, that saw your potential, even in the midst of what you were doing and said, you know, you're meant for more than this? Sadly, it wasn't my parents. This was an era where if you were an entrepreneur, it was because you couldn't get a job. And that wasn't too far along, too far ago, was it? Now it's funny, people call themselves entrepreneurs because they're unemployed and they want some kind of, you know, adoration of it. You know, entrepreneur means, you know, stand up and get kicked in the nuts, fall down and get up again. There's nothing sexy about being an entrepreneur. But uh, my parents... When I left the construction firm uh, that my parents had, and it was only a tiny little firm, but my cousins worked on it, my granddad worked on it, and I just did not want this to be my life mapped out. When I left that firm, my mum actually shunned me for a while because she saw I was turning my back on the family. And I just, I just thought to myself, this can't be it. I remember being at the building site. There's my dad, there's my cousin, there's my uncle, and there's my granddad. All my family tree... Oh, on the side of this bloody web building site, is this my life? And, you know, Friday, Friday lunchtime, you get a couple of beers in there, bang, you'd start a pub fight. You know, it was just what happened in East London. I just thought, let's go with something more. My wife, she just knew there was something. And I had a, I had a boy, I have a boy, I'm glad to say, um, Colin West. And he, these two people are my cornerstones. And they just felt as though I could do something. And they never, they never talked down to me. They never did anything more than just, you know, push, um, uh, enhance, invigorate. And I still class these two people as, as, as the best people in the world. And I'm honored to know them. So I was very fortunate to have two people that just went, Steve, if you want to do that, why don't you just go and do it? And they would just, they, they would just challenge you like that. Which you need. You need people to draw out your greatness and potential and test you and challenge you and, and, and keep you from being comfortable. And I still keep trying to find them. Uh, that's, that's one of the key things about growth. Try to surround yourself with brilliant people. Now, I'm very proud that I still keep, I still keep those people around. Obviously, one of them I married, and it's not Colin. Um, <laughs> um, he's a great guy. But he's a bit ugly. So love you, Colin. But, you know, but I still try to uh, keep people around me that inspire and amaze me. So I will always be going to different events. Thankfully, because of what I do, I'm constantly meeting people that are the heads of that game. And it could be anything from you know managing a, a, an amazing 2,000-person print press farm somewhere in the Philippines to the head of the Vatican to the head of a Silicon Valley venture capital company uh, it just the people I get to meet now constantly amaze me, and that's where my education comes from. And a lot of those, I'm glad to say that I've been able to become friends with, and and that's also very yeah. Very and I want to dive into that and and how that all came to be here in a moment. How old were you when you left London? I was, I think, twenty. 2021, something like that. So, should I tell you how I left London? This will probably sum up what an idiot I am. <laughs> so I was on the train going to a building site, and there was a guy on the train that worked for a little bank, a little brokerage firm. 
I remember looking after him at school when he used to get bullied. Uh, I hate bullies. And there was this kid who used to bully him. So, you know, I was always a big fella. So I would just stick up for him. You know, I didn't want to be friends with the guy, but I didn't like the bully. Okay. So I never had any relationship with this kid, but then on the train, he recognized me and just started talking to me. So we started chatting. I said, oh, what are you doing now? Now I'm looking like shit with my tool bag next to me on my way to the building site. He's got a suit on. And for me, he was Gordon Gecko. He was Wall Street. And he said to me that, you know, this is the 80s. And, you know, we've got these, I work for a brokerage house. They've actually got a training thing today for interns. You don't have to know anything. You just have to be able to talk to people. And, of course, the Irish are brilliant at just being able to talk the ears off a donkey. So <laughs> I went, let's go. I literally went to the bank with my uh, construction stuff on and tried to sit in on an internship. Now, I had to come back for a second appointment, which I did with uh, my dad's suit, okay? Bloody thing falling off my shoulders. It was just ridiculous. So we did. I turned up at the event. They actually had these people that were moving brokers from England to Hong Kong on the opposite side of the hall. So on one side of the hall, it was a seminar for the interns. On the other side of the hall, these people that were being sent to Hong Kong to head up the new uh, brokerage division. I went into the other one. (laughs) And I sat there and listened to them talk. And at the back of the room was a breakfast buffet. I was personally challenged to eat the entire buffet, okay? So I'm sat in this room with my dad's suit, which was about four inches off of each shoulder, and I am scoffing as much. I think that was the first place I ever had salmon on a bagel. Couldn't, I didn't know what salmon was. And I'm eating through all of this stuff. And then at the end of it, and this was the only thing I remember, the guy on stage said, and as you leave, make sure the girls, and all of a sudden these pretty old girls came in with these clipboards and lined up by the rear doors as I'm on probably my 17th helping of this buffet. And they said, make sure the girls have got you a dress for the tickets and welcome package. So I walked up there with my plate of food and I went, Sims. So she looks through this form and she went, oh, I don't have you down here. Now, of course, she didn't have me down there. I'd only walked in like an hour beforehand. But I was like, oh, no, this keeps happening to me. She's like, sir, let me take your address down there. So she wrote down my name and address. Okay. So I finished my breakfast, buggered off home, changed into my building stuff, went back to work. About a week later, a package turned up on my doorstep, and it was a return ticket to Hong Kong and my apartment complex number to go work for this brokerage Oh, my gosh. So I said to my wife, I went, oh, I've got this. And it was all kind of weird that night. And then the following day I went to work and I came back and um, she'd actually got from her parents a suitcase. And I said, what are you doing? She said, well, you're going, aren't you? And I was living with her at the time. And I said, how can I go? And she said, how can you not? You don't jump half into the water. You've done this. If you don't follow it through, You'll always wonder. And so she was the one that encouraged me. She sold her car, so I had some money. I arrived on the Saturday, and I was fired on the Tuesday. Oh, my gosh. And then what? Well, then I just started rolling around Hong Kong, trying to work out what I could do. So I ended up working, you know, being big and ugly, you've always got a job on the door. So I started working on the door and stuff, and I had this weird idea 
that if I knew rich people, I could go back to the bank and go, hey, I need rich people, employ me. That was the intelligence. So that way I started um, you know, being able to notice quickly who had money, who didn't, just by the way they held themselves, walked, uh, what they were wearing, that kind of stuff. As I've always said, the guy that turns up to a Ferrari dealership on a Saturday wearing a suit, he's never had a Ferrari in his life. But the guy that turns up there on a Tuesday wearing jeans and a T-shirt, this is probably his fourth. Mm -hmm. So I just started to notice these little things. I would pay attention to it. And then eventually I started throwing my own parties with passwords. And that's how the whole bluefish came across. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so the original idea that was planted was I'm going to get to know some rich people so that I could go back to the bank and get a job as a banker. <laughs> yes. Can you imagine if that actually worked, how screwed I would be? <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. You, you would, instead of being fired on a Tuesday, you would have been fired on a Friday, you know? Yeah, maybe, maybe I, maybe Tuesday night, but yeah. So it was, uh, yeah, no, it was a very, very strange thing. Okay. And so how did this idea then get, how did you nurture this idea in order to, launched the ultimate concierge service in the world. Ah, well, this is where I tell you I sit down and build up a business plan and <laughs> analyzed my data. No, so what happened was I spent from the late 90s up until, um, yeah, sorry, about 94, um, up until 99, throwing tons of parties and events and building up a database of affluent people and still, on a monthly basis, getting to know banks, trying to get into that. Now, I was always, I always had a philosophy, if they don't pay, they don't pay attention. So I would always charge people. You know, if you want to go do something, yeah, I can do that. Cost you 200 bucks, cost you 200,000, cost you 20 bucks. You know, I would always just, I would charge you, okay? And so I was making money, but we never focused on it. And then one day, again, Claire came in and said, you're spending a lot of time trying to do something which no one's taking you seriously on, yet look at, the, look at what you've built here. And we realized that we were actually making money. We were living very well. We were traveling around the world at all these events. I had a good network, and I hadn't overthunk it. You know, I just said, if I said, yeah, I'm going to do this, it would be done. And of course, the more I did, the more credibility I got. And if I got to a door and it was locked and someone said, no, we're not, we're not going to work with you, I would get someone that they respected, admired um, to give them a call and go, hey, I believe Steve Sims is trying to do something. He said, you know, he gets stuff done. And then all of a sudden that door would open. So I'm very keen and happy to lean on experiences that I have to help other access points open. And it was about 2000 that we suddenly thought, oh, we should take this seriously. And then it was about 2004 that because I was trying to make it a business, I screwed it up. Because there's nothing, if you want to kill passion, work out how you can make money out of that passion. <laughs> the second you try to monetize something you love doing is the, is, is the, the timeline that it starts to go wrong. Mm -hmm. So what I did was I turned around and Again, everything incorporates me and Claire because she's been there all the time. We decided, all right, I'm not handling the money because if I look at my bank account in the morning and I've got lots of, lots of uh, dollars in there, I get lazy during the day, you know? 
if I look at the bank account and all of a sudden there's not a lot of dollars in there, I start going out hustling and starting to get more business coming in and sometimes take business that causes me a lot, a lot of stress to pull off. I never not pull off anything that I say I'm going to do. But sometimes I've taken challenges which I shouldn't have taken and it's caused me too much stress and maybe I didn't make as much money as I should have quoted in the first place. So I then turned around and I went, you look after the money. I'm going to just do what I do best. And that way I don't have that controlling my mindset on a daily basis. Nice. Yeah, so you're the visionary and she's the executor, basically. Well, I'm the, I'm the, execute, uh, I'm the ex- executor, but she's the one that actually monetizes everything. So I will go through what this is going to cost and she's the one that handles all of the, uh, the ugly side of it. This episode is brought to you by the Lawton Marketing Group, a full-service advertising and design agency specializing in websites, social media, apps, logos, and more. Based in Oklahoma, they work with clients across the nation from small businesses to large corporations and everything in between. You can find them right now on the web at www.lawtonmg.com or call them at 580-275-2063. Connect with them now for a complimentary competitive analysis of your website. Just tell them the Impact Entrepreneur told you to call. I'm curious what the early, so you're, you're, you're in the you know, mid-90s, you're starting these parties and getting these things organized and launched. I mean, where did you host them? Who came and what did these things even look like? <laughs> oh God, you shouldn't be asking me these questions. The first party was held in a Hong Kong brothel. Oh my God. Uh, whoops. Next question. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh my God. No, and that, that's, that's an honest truth because, you know, Hong Kong has an area called Wang Chai. And Wang Chai was like the um, Soho area in the 90s of New York. So it was where all of the, it was, it's, it still is where all the nightclubs are. But at the time, the nightclubs were a bit more seedy. And there was lots of girly bars, lots and lots and lots of them. And that was what I was the doorman on. I was on the door of one of the girly bars. And when we did our first party, the deal was none of the girls were allowed to be naked. All of the girls had to be dressed. So these girls couldn't believe it, but it gave them the ability to just turn up in all kind of different kind of outfits. And, um, but they weren't allowed to take their clothes off. And it was just funny because now... You went along, because let's be honest, people go along for the tease. They don't go along for the actual, you know, completion of it. They go along for the, oh, this is nice, this is sick, and then they go home, okay? So we just took it one step further, and we said, look, you're getting nothing other than pretty girls eye candy, but nothing's going to happen. And they liked it, and even the ladies liked that as well, but it was it had this CD-esque kind of bar, and it was just a cool vibe. So that's where the first one was. So how did you continue to evolve and what was the first major like aha game changer you know 10x kind of thing that you did so i have i did a video a long time ago called the chug test and there was a period of my life that as i started getting more successful and that's monetary and i started knowing a lot more rich people i thought i i thunked that i had to change 
So I was always rolling around in a black T-shirt and, and on a motorbike, and I, I am now. I don't even own a car. I collect motorcycles, and anywhere I am, I've got a helmet in my hand. But uh, at the time, I thought, oh, I, I've got to look prestigious. So um, I actually did a couple of parties for Ferrari, so I bought a Ferrari, okay? I ended up buying three Ferraris, and I had tailor-made suits. And I remember going to a party... And I've got a photograph taken of me turning up on this, in this Ferrari wearing a suit. And I just thought to myself, you know, it's not me. And it got me very depressed. I was becoming someone that I didn't recognize. So that night, I did what all intelligent people do. I got shit-faced. And I woke up in the morning to see an empty bottle of whiskey. And I thought to myself, I don't want to know meat do business or talk to anyone that I wouldn't want to share a whiskey with. And if they don't like me, there's plenty of other people in the world. Mm. So I came up with this chunk test, very primitive, and that's what it was. And I, so one of the things that we do is whenever someone applies to become a member of my concierge firm, we interview them. And we interview them, we never Google them, we interview them to discover, is this the kind of person I'd like to hang out with? Do they pass the chug test? And then when that happens, then we Google them and understand the profile and all that kind of stuff. So as I was growing up in the 90s, we didn't have computers, let alone Google. So it was purely based on the fact that, did I like it? And I ended up building some really good relationships. And that's the key word. Not liking someone on Facebook, but actually building up a relationship. But I never, ever, ever asked, what do you do? You know, what's your position in business? I just cared, you pay your bills, I like hanging out with you. You pay your bills, I like hanging out. That was as primitive as it needed to be. <laughs> and so then one day, um, I flew from Switzerland, I lived in Switzerland, uh, I left Switzerland, came over to Palm Beach, I don't know why, but I did, because it looked sunny. I forgot <laughs> about the humidity and how people go to, two people go to Park Beach, those that are looking to die and those on witness protection. So <laughs> it, was a, it was a very strange crowd to be in. But while I was there, I got a phone call, and a guy that I knew in Switzerland, who I knew he was American, uh, they said, uh, we're doing uh, an event in New York, and I, I believe you're here now. And I went, yeah, I am. And they said, well, can you host it? Can you partner with it? He said, we need some help. And I was like, yeah, I am fine. You know, what is it? And they said, oh, it's the New York Fashion Week. Wow. And I said, what? And they went, yeah, he bought it. And that was the first time in like five years I had any idea who Teddy Forsman was. And I had always known him was Teddy, and I'd gone to, gone to Wimbledon with him, and I knew, he owned, uh, I knew he was involved in Gulfstream Aircraft. Didn't know he owned it, but they bought IMG. And before you knew it, uh, we were doing that, and then the following year, we were the official concierge of the Grammys, uh, and then the Kentucky Derby, and I was like, holy shit, you know, I'm, do I, I'm doing all this, and then I would meet people, and then, you know, I'd go to that country, and all of a sudden, I'd get off the plane, and there was, like, police security there, escorting me to a car, you know, to take, and then I'd find out that the guy was the head of the country and stuff, so I'd realized that by keeping that no-nonsense approach... Some of the people I was getting to know were a little bit big and powerful. I'd say so. Yeah, it was kind of amazing and cool and scary, 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, all of a sudden, not only is it cool and there's this great opportunity, but the responsibility also went up 100x. Yeah, it did. That's usually where things go wrong when you start getting a bit nervous. And I thought to myself, they didn't join Bluefish, you know, because we were precocious a-holes in school ties. They joined Bluefish because we were the cool kids on the block and everyone wants to, to hang around with the cool kid in the playground. He's not the smartest, you know, but he's the coolest kid. Yeah, and he knows the most people. Yeah. Yeah, that's the one they want to hang around with because you know for well, sooner or later, that one's going to get in trouble and you want to be there when that happens. That's us. It just grew that way. We just very quickly and very thankfully decided, no, we're not going to change our personality. This is us. Why did you call it Bluefish, out of curiosity? <laughs> <laughs> so what I used to do was I used to fax. Do you remember those things called faxes? Oh, yeah. I used to fax to my database, because they didn't have emails and there wasn't a lot of them with these cell phones because they were the size of a briefcase in the 90s, we would fax to these people the location and time, sorry, the date and time of the party. And then on the day of the event, we would fax them another fax with the exact location and the password. And I was still working on the door of my own parties because believe it or not, I never thought anyone would ever want to do business with me. So for years, I always thought I was getting away with it. People would ask for Steve Sims, and I would say, oh, I don't know if he's here yet, mate. And I would, I was the doorman, because I'm thinking, if they know I'm a doorman and I'm big and ugly, they're not going to not gonna be happy that I've got that credit card. So I used to send them this password, and it would be things like, name two of the Teletubbies. <laughs> and... Name, uh, finish this sentence, one fish, two fish, red fish. Blue fish. And I would, yeah, I would just come up with these different things because we would have these people turn up at this party, and I remember this one very clearly. I'm on the door with my fellow meathead, and we're at a yacht party in uh, Victoria Harbour in Hong Kong. And the boat is overflowing with people, music pumping, girls are squawking, the whole freaking thing's kicking off. We're on the edge of the gangplank, and this guy turns up with his girlfriend, and he's like, uh, yeah, I'm here for the party. And we turned around and said, what party's that? And there's a party here. And I looked at my mate, and I'm like, do you know about a party going on? He's like, I don't know about a party going on. And the whole thing's kicking off <laughs> five feet behind us. And everyone queued up behind this guy who started a giggle. I'm like, is there a password? And the guy, my, my buddy's like, I think there's a password. And we're just having this conversation between us. And this guy's like, look, I haven't got time for this. Do you know who I am? Second he said that. We were like, we do. And that's why you have to leave. <laughs> and then the next guy walked forward. And that password was, and of course, finished the sentence. One fish, two fish, red fish. So we just let him and he went, blue fish? In you go, mate. Have a good time. So if you didn't have... The confidence just to laugh at yourself and have a bit of a giggle with a silly password, we didn't want you in. And then someone actually uh, contacted one of the banks and they wanted, uh, they wanted the birthday party done and they wanted it done by the Bluefish Company. So I got called into the bank and believe it or not, I actually thought that day I was getting a job in the bank and they just called me in to tell me that this girl wanted the birthday party done by Bluefish and did I know Bluefish? And I went, no, I don't. And they went, well, you did it. And I was like, hell, is that what they're calling us? And that's how Bluefish came out. Oh, my gosh. That's crazy. 
There has been there has been no thought or intelligence that has gone into this in the last 50 years. It's all been gut reaction, keeping things primitive and doing shit you like doing. And now, you know, some of the most famous things that that you've done and are are well known for are getting people on a trip to the International Space Station and on, on a submarine to the Titanic. I mean, that, that, that's just insanely out of this world kind of thinking. Is that, is that stuff that you come up with? Um, a lot of, in the early stages, a lot of that stuff we came up with or we would be approached and some would say, hey, we're doing, we're doing an expedition to the Titanic. Do you have any clients you think would be interested in it? So we got that kind of thing. But now what happens is we gave up designing those things because there's nothing more creative than our clients. So what happens is, you know, we'll send out a newsletter um, and it could have like five items in the newsletter and someone will come back and go, oh, I got your newsletter. By the way, I would like to do guitar lessons with Slash or I would like to jump out of an aircraft at Halo's, at Halo height. Or I would like to go training with Navy SEALs through the Conga. You know, they will just contact us and we'll go, yeah, that sounds good. All right, let's see what we can do. And we'll just do it. You know, we had a client that wanted to get married in the Vatican. We set up a dinner party at the feet of Michelangelo David in Florence. We had to clear out an entire museum for that. And it made me laugh because on the door of the uh, Academia in Florence, there's about 20 signs. And on each one of those signs in different languages, it says the exact same thing in different languages. No food and drink past this point. <laughs> and there's us with the doors open, carrying in chandeliers, uh, hot plates, table chairs, no food and drink. And there's us taking in an entire restaurant. And we even had Andrea Bocelli serenade the clients. So that was kind of cool. Is it really the money that talks in that situation? Or how do you get that thing to happen? The, the money is the fuel, but when it's that level, you know, money gets you a couple of good seats at, you know, Hamilton or Justin Bieber, okay? It doesn't get you backstage. You know, you've got to know who to talk to. You know, hey, what do we have to do to make this happen? Is there something that we can do? Never ask a question that you're happy to get a no from. So it's a case of the relationships. Hey, we really want to do this. How can we make this happen tonight? You know, and, and you've really got to have a relationship, credibility, positioning, and standing that they will accept it and kind of want to get involved in it. Now, for me, those big things like the Vatican and the, and the uh, Florence and the Titanic, all of those things are amazing bucket list items, and there's a lot of passion behind it. So if you can get the other person to actually buy into that passion of how that will actually achieve someone's goal, then they like to get on board. If you can get them on board, then, you know, you can get the access you need. And do you do that by telling a story and getting them to believe in the reality that they could be part of that story? Or how do, how do you get someone to open the doors to the Vatican so someone can get married there? I mean, like... Yeah, you, you, you sell them the scene, you know? It's like, it's like selling a, a movie. You know, you, you give them a call and you say, hey, you know, this is going to sound silly, but stick with me for a second. I want to tell you a story. And you go, I've got two people. They've always... You sell them the scene. You know, you say, yeah, we got this. And do you know what? The location wants to be there. You're the one that holds the key to this happening. Now, we could do it somewhere else, but that would be diluting the dream. 
I want them in 20 years' time when they're telling their grandkids a story that is held in the Vatican, that is held in the academia, that is held in the White House. It's at the feet of, you know, Mar-a-Lago. It's wherever, you know? But I want that to be part of the story. What needs to happen to make it happen? I mean, if there, if there isn't a testament to the power of story pa- storytelling that exists, I think your, your, what you do is it. I mean, the power of storytelling is what makes these things happen. Yeah, if you go, if you walk through the door, I think money's the lowest currency in the world. You know, you phone me up tomorrow and go, hey, Steve, I need you here and I'll pay you $2,000. You know, what's it going to do? What's in it for me? You know, I don't need $2,000 desperately enough to hang around with a-holes for a day. So I want to communicate with people and then, okay, is there a charity we could donate to you? Is there something we could support? Is there something personally that we could do for you that would help you? You know, now that's where the money comes in, but you really got to find the relationship and get them to commit first. There's always a solution is what you're saying. You just got to get creative. Oh, and if someone doesn't give you the answer that you want, then you're talking to the wrong person. Right. Yeah, absolutely. You know, what role has generosity played in your entrepreneurial journey? Don't think it has. I don't think I'm generous. Generosity. That's a funny. I don't think I'm generous. So I, I, I really don't know how I can answer that. Well, maybe other, maybe other people have been generous to you. I don't think I've ever looked at it like that. When you've got a relationship with someone, you do things. And I think if you title it, if I was to do something to you today and I was viewing it that, oh, I'm being generous to, to him, you know, I'm, getting, I'm generous, then maybe the relationship's not really there. You know, if I donate to a charity, it's because I want that charity to find a cure for that. You know, if I'm doing this and I'm paying for that, it's because I want it done. If I want, if I want to buy something and send it to a client, it's because I like that client and I want them to know I'm thinking of it. I don't think the word generous comes into any of those actions. I think that's a brilliant answer and response. You know, I mean, and there's a lot of truth. In fact, you know, you're very well known for just being authentic. And I think that's probably why you've never thought of that word in that way before, because it's, it doesn't come into play. It's just, you are who you are and, and you give without, without necessarily asking questions. Shit. I thought it was my stunning good looks that I was known for. (laughs) Well, you do have a website called uglysims.com. So I mean, you know, yeah, no, that kind of gives it away, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> in addition to running this massively successful concierge business, the, the Bluefish Group, you also speak to entrepreneurs and organizations like you talked about earlier in kind of an anti-guru way about the importance of owning who each of us are individually and including our rough edges. Why is that message so important to you? And why do you believe that it's important that we all listen to that? I, there's a lot of consultants and speakers out there at the moment, and frankly, most of them piss me off because um, they're all selling the same snake oil. I like to go onto these venues and I like to get out there because I think a lot of people are misguided, and I I see it from the other side. I know a lot of wealthy people in business, and we all look to build a company that's different, unique. Yet we're all different and unique the second we're born, but we are trying to build a persona 
that's artificial. And that's where the ugly comes in. I try to get people to go, well, hang on a minute. You are you. If you are you, then people will resonate to you and you don't have to have any effort in being you. So I try to teach people how to be, I hate the word authentic. It's become the tag word of, of uh, you know, the last couple of years. But I try to tell people that the perfection is in the imperfections. There's one of those little bloody quotes again. And I try to get people to strip away the, the, the bollock answers that they've read on YouTube and on Facebook of how to build a multi-million dollar business, build a $10 business, and then work at it twice as hard. Mm-hmm. And I try to, and that's where the ugly comes in. You know, while everyone's sending out 10 million emails every day trying to get business, send out 10 letters. You know, make five phone calls. You know, just things like that. Go where people aren't marketing and try that area. So go the ugly route. I saw someone a while ago, I was in their office, and they were doing a picture for a newsletter, and there were two people open with these photoshops, and I was all geeky, and I was looking at all of this. I was like, oh, what are you doing? They were like, we're just getting the banner ready. And I was like, what banner for a newsletter? And I was like, oh, right. And they were photoshopping this girl's face, and they were bringing in reds, and they were doing it. And I was like, but that doesn't look good because it's not real. That was a hot girl on a cool backdrop. You know, no filter needed. Put that in. People can see when stuff is, is artificial now. And if you pick up, like a Vogue magazine is classic. You pick up Vogue or one of those big, you know, Harper's Bazaar, one of those ye old fashion magazines, you flick through that and you've got two models leaning over a rock for a bloody Calvin Klein advert and those kind of, you just skip past it. But you always go to the paparazzi shots where someone's stepping out of a, of, a, of a restaurant to see what they're wearing because that hasn't been fabricated. That hasn't been photoshopped. That's real life. You recognize it. And that's why I try to do things. When someone's doing something, give them the real you. Don't give them the filter. There's a lot of clients I have lost over the years because they've realized I'm just a whiskey-drinking biker and they just go, uh, yeah. and they haven't told me to my face, but I've, I've recognized the relationship has ended either the time they've met me, heard about me, seen me on me on one of my uh, uh, speeches, uh, and they've just gone, is this really the guy I want having my black card? No, it's not. So, you know, let's end the relationship and I'll go and find other people that actually want to be spoken to as a real human being. I'm not going to phone you up and go, good afternoon, Mr. Flint. How are you? Are you having a great day? How's your hair? Don't <laughs> care. I want you, you, you employ enough people to blow smoke up your ass. I'm there just go, Mike, what do you need? Let's get it done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no hair to uh, to compliment on, by the way. It's I pretty much have a similar haircut <laughs> to you. I want to say thank you for what you just said, because that is critical advice. And, you know, one of the, one of the, most popular hashtags on Instagram is no filter necessary, right? When you take this beautiful picture and you're like, ah, there's no filter necessary. Well, we should live life that same way and, and live our life with, without thinking about putting a filter over it and just being 
who we are created to be. And that's one of my main messages of my show. And when I have opportunities to speak to people is that each and every one of us has been created with a unique ability, a unique potential. And it's our responsibility to, to tap that and give it out to the world and to do it unabashedly. So I want to thank you for, for, for what you just said. I have a few uh, last questions, uh, kind of rapid fire questions, if you will, uh, before we uh, say farewell today. One of which is if you could pick any skill set that you currently possess and turn it into a superpower, what would it be? I would be real man. <laughs> you would be real man. I, there's my son. You know, it's like these little, um, like lit. You know, obviously, I, well, I say obviously, I've got kids. So every couple of weeks, I learn a new word. And then a week later, when I use it, I realize how it's now out of style. <laughs> but there was a period where it was like, keep it real. So I would be the guy that would descend on you and suddenly turn, turn your world, world real. So uh, I would be the keep it real man. Oh, I love that. <laughs> That's hilarious. What are three lies you believe people tell themselves that prevent them from fully realizing their true potential? Oh, this is a loved one. It'll sort itself out. Okay. I've always loved that. You know, it'll it'll sort itself out. Will it fuck? You you have to sort it out. So that's one. Oh, the um the the, the clock watcher. It's the guy that says, well, did, I'm gonna work on this like, you know, this is taking me 22 hours. I don't care how long it's taking you to do anything. I care how long you were actually in that moment to get the, the, the thing done. And people can't retain focus for 22 hours. So I don't like the clock watcher. I care about how long you're in your zone. What's the final lie? God, I've never, that, that's a brilliant question. <laughs> I've never been asked that question. Well done. And thank you for not asking these people. I guess some people, contact me with the questions. And I always say to them, don't give me the questions beforehand. You know, ask them at the time. So I appreciate you for not doing that. But the third lie, I don't know. Probably similar to number one about, you know, it'll sort itself out where, you know, it'll, it'll, it'll get better. You know, I don't think, I don't believe things happen. You know, cancer doesn't get better. Your gearbox in the car doesn't get better. You know, paying the mortgage doesn't get easier. All of these things are just silly um, for you to think they're just going to write themselves. They're not organic. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. I think that that's one of the biggest lies that we tell ourselves. We wait uh, because we think that somebody else is going to be successful on our behalf. I've got it. I've got the one that if you want to nail me on my best bed with, the biggest lie, I can't do that. Ooh. There you go. There you go. If I if I if I used if I believed in that, I would not be sitting here talking to you from the hills of LA, talking shit and drinking whiskey. You know, there's people out there that go, you hear it a lot, you know, yeah, 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 let's do this market. Yeah, I can't do that. Copy, I can't do that. You know, negotiating contract, I can't do that. So yeah, that, that would be it. That's the biggest lie that people tell themselves. I love that, you know, and in fact that that that's that's the truth, because if you said that I can't do that, you'd still be laying brick in East London, probably. Bingo. <laughs> Instead of, you know, living it up in the hills of Mall, uh, Hollywood and on Mulholland Drive. Yep. Well, Steve, I want to say thank you for joining us on the Impact Entrepreneur Show. 
This has been a fun conversation, but not only fun and more importantly, it's been an insightful conversation where I think people can take what might be perceived as humor and actually execute some of the things that you've said to to really change their life and the trajectory of their life, but it re, it's it's all on them and it's it's about having a can do out of an attitude and not an I can't do attitude. Where can my listeners go to learn more about what you're doing and and interact with you? Um, I'm up there on Facebook under Ugly Sims and I'm at UglySims.com. But uh, thebluefish.com is the uh, the concierge side and Ugly Sims is where I tell people what I'm up to and how I do it. Well, we'll be sure to link to all of that in the show notes. And actually, one one uh, final question. I was When I was on the UglySims.com website, the homepage shows you presenting to some group, but you're holding like a stack of envelopes. What's the story behind that? So every time I go to, every time I, I travel, I go to the hotel. The first thing I do is I actually grab a bunch of envelopes from the, uh, uh, the concierge, and then I send a note to like 10 different clients. And so the client ends up getting a letter uh, from like Berlin, Russia, China, LA, you know, Chicago, anywhere, but no one ever gets post nowadays. So when you get a letter and it's coming from a different country, you open it. And inside, sometimes I'll put my bar tab in there, uh, my, you know, my credit card receipt, and I'll say to them, hey, Mike, I was thinking of you while drinking all this whiskey, all the best seat. <laughs> and I'll just shove it in there and just say it. And it's stupid, but the amount of people that then reach out to you and they're like, you're a twat, but hey, I wanted to talk to you about this. And it's just a way of starting a conversation. And it's just a way of telling people that you're still thinking of it. And, and it's so unique today. Today, we've uh, resulted to text messages, Facebook Messenger, or email. And so to get a physical piece of mail is a miracle. <laughs> well, the, the beautiful thing about doing it from a hotel is you're not paying for the letter. You're not paying for the envelope. So you actually cut down your costs. All you're paying for is a stamp. See, you are a thrifty SOB. I told you, I told you, I'm not generous to the post office, that's for sure. Well, Steve, thank you again for being on the show today, and we look forward to sharing this with the audience. Do not, I repeat, do not forget about the awesome gifts I've created for you, the Clarity of Purpose Scorecard and the Six Bridges to Personal Growth and Well-Being. Head over to theimpactentrepreneur.net forward slash scorecard and download those resources today. Now, Steve, thank you for this hilarious, fast-paced, and very valuable conversation. I took so many notes, but a couple of the key takeaways for me are the importance of owning our own story and not letting our past hold us back from realizing our full potential. If you missed any of the key points and highlights from our conversation, we've got you covered over at theimpactentrepreneur.net forward slash 67 for the key points with my, from my conversation with Steve. And while you're there, be sure to check out the Lot Marketing Group and the Podcast Masters. Could not do this show without those two amazing teams. One final request, if you've gotten any value from the show at all, I would like to invite you to write an honest review in iTunes. Head over to iTunes, search for The Impact Entrepreneur Show or Mike Flynn, and write a review today. It seriously does help me and helps the show, points more its eyes and ears in our direction. Thank you so much. Now, until next time, go make an impact.